0: Hello everyone, welcome to our fourth episode of Europe After Coronavirus, a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate, a Jean Monnet-sponsored network. My name is Carlos Carnicero-Urabayen, I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and today we will be talking about how the corona crisis is creating new lines of political conflict in Europe, and how this is affecting established patterns of political conflicts. We have three great analysts joining us today. Uh, today's guest editor will be Ben Crump. Ben is professor of political science at the Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam, author of the book *Learning from the EU Constitutional Treaty: Democratic Constitutionalization Beyond the Nation States*, and work package leader in the Horizon 2020 Reconnect project. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We have also Heather Gravy joining us today. She's the director of the Open Society European Policy Institute and director of EU Affairs. And she's also the author of the book The EU's Transformative Power, Europeanization through Conditionality in Central and Eastern Europe. Welcome, Heather.
1: Thank you. Hello.
0: Last but not least, I'd like you to welcome Peter De Professor of Political Science at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, where his research addresses Euroscepticism and public debate in the mass media. He's also a work package leader in the Horizon 2020 Reconnect project. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. So, the first question I'd like to ask you is about the nature of this crisis. Is the coronavirus fundamentally a technical question asking for a technically optimal response? Or rather, this crisis involves a deeply political considerations. Ben, would you like to start? Yes, that would
2: be uh, nice. Um, well, of course, at the first instance, the primary objective is, is relatively clear. We want to save lives. Um, and in that sense, there's little, um, certainly at the beginning, there's very little contestation about the ultimate end. Um, that everyone wants to achieve, and we also see, of course, that scientific experts have been prominently involved um, in the decision making, um, and that a lot of the decision making is being driven by figures on infection rates and deaths. At the same, and, and also you see, of course, that major opposition parties also rally uh, around the the government and its response. But of course, in the end, it's not the scientific experts that make the decisions. Certainly not, since we we're operating under a lot of uncertainty. We don't know really how the virus works. Uh, we, we we can uh, it's difficult to assess the consequences. So there are choices to be made, and you also see that because in the end, different countries make different choices. Most notably, of course, Sweden, where they have a much lighter regime, but also the relatively slow lockdown in the UK. And certainly, when, when now we we we're kind of starting to talk about lifting the lockdowns uh, a bit again, you see that I think that the scope of choice increases again. Um, And some countries start to lift the lockdown um, uh, or seem to be quite uh, uh, ambitious in in, in trying to release the lockdown regime relatively soon, while others take a much more cautious approach. And there, of course, uh, we certainly see political choices kicking in again. um, But but then the question is, what kind of political choices are these? Um, And and why do different governments make different choices? Is that a matter of ideology? Does it affect the national culture? Um, or does it just reflect very contingent factors about the scientific experts in charge um, or uh, the, the, the political leaders? So I think that's where a lot of the debate starts now. Um, are these political choices? Um, and increasingly they are, but, but why would different actors, different countries, different governments make different choices that they make?
0: Heather, what's your what's your take on that? To what point we're talking here about the technical... Uh, discussion and, or a rather political discussion where, where choices, as, as Ben explained, are, are important?
1: Well, health issues, particularly health crisis, crises, are never purely technical because they fundamentally involve us as human beings. Um, and in this case, this is a health crisis, which um, is a whole of society and whole of economy crisis. It's, pretty well every single individual um, on every continent on the earth except arguably arguably Antarctica. And it's profoundly political um, in the questions it raises, because it it has um, laid bare inequalities and injustices which have been there in our societies and our economies for a long time, and which were not addressed in the response to the 2008 financial and then economic and Euro crisis. Um, And now it's laid them bare in a different way because they're there, they've been exacerbated since 2008. And also because the healthcare crisis has raised into public awareness the, contributions, the vital contributions of low-wage workers in the healthcare sector, but also across all kinds of other functions, from um, the waste collection people uh, through to uh, people who are cleaning, for example, uh, public transport, and, and indeed the public transport workers themselves. It's raised their status and made their contribution more visible. These are the people who are risking their lives to keep things functioning for everybody else. And that changes the view of inequalities and injustices to some extent um, in every society. And of course, it's a highly political question because um, the confinements, the lockdowns have necessarily Uh, curtailed the civil liberties of the population in a way that people in Europe have not experienced uh, for a very long time. And some governments have used that to grab power and to extend their emergency powers. But it's also raised questions about how far this kind of emergency uh, should be dealt with through emergency response and how far it needs a structural response for the longer term.
0: Peter, do you you agree with with that? Do you think this is a, a profoundly political uh, discussion in terms of how to react to this uh, pandemic?
3: Well, uh, the danger of sounding boring, I think Ben and Heather are right, um, and they've raised very lo- a lot of, of good points. I'd just like to add that uh, being political is something that is, is very natural to um, many operating in the political system, particularly political parties and also media. We try to look for um, patterns in and folding this into kind of debates that we're already familiar with. So you see then in highly polarized societies, like for example, the UK or, or the US, that the minute one party says, we need to restrict uh, social movement and go into lockdown, the other side says no, not because they've, you know, carefully thought it through, but purely as a reaction to the other side and, and folding these issues into known conflicts. And the second thing that I'd like to add. Is is the enormous frustration that people have. You know, the, the people are scared, um, and people are frustrated that uh, this can happen. Uh, used to much more freedom, and all of a sudden uh, we are in in you know unprecedented restrictions. So we're looking for uh, people to blame, and we all have our our uh, preferred uh, actors to blame, whether it's China or the establishment or. Um, whomever uh, might might come to mind, and uh, and and you see again that, that kind of you know channeling of frustration into known political conflict patterns.
0: So uh, I think you're you you implied uh, some of you implied this before. So when we have a look at the different kinds of lockdown regimes that we see uh, in Europe uh, nowadays, can these differences be attributed to different ideological factors? different political choices
2: well I'm, I'm, I'm really quite skeptical about it I think that that it, it you can play a bit with the counterfactual what what would have happened if the the center conservatives would have been in power in uh, in France or what would have happened if the center-right would have been in power in Spain or if there had been a left center-left government in uh, rather than a pure center government in, in Germany and I would expect uh, that in most countries uh, the initial response at least would would have been more or less the same, um, but maybe with the exception of 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 the funny political dynamics that we've seen in the United Kingdom, um, that that Peter already hinted at, where where the Conservatives have played it uh, in a different way, and and Labour might have met, taken a more continental approach if I can call it uh, that way. Uh, but there is also, I think, the, the further moment to consider indeed whether. Um, it opens new political opportunities and and, and new political awareness, as as Heather was suggesting. Um, And and there, I think, the opportunity structures may well be different in different countries. Um, And and this this inclination to to re-evaluate inequalities in societies, uh, there may be more scope for that um, in in some countries than in others. So in that sense, um, the real differences will only increase, I guess, Uh, once we uh, move forward, Um, while I think the initial responses were probably more reflective of national cultures than they were of political differences.
0: Heather, do you agree with that? Uh, Other parties in government and we would have seen the same responses. Do you agree?
1: This is always a tricky one because often these days, especially when parties float around a lot more, they're less fixed in their ideological uh, convictions than they were in decades past. uh, It's harder and harder to say what exactly is a typical centre-right response or a centre-left or a far-right or far-left response because parties fluctuate and move a great deal more across the political spectrum. And plus, in uh, many governments in Europe are in fact coalitions. Um, Some of them are de facto coalitions, even if they. They are in theory led by one party, but just to reflect a bit further on, um, the comments before about culture, it's also about how, um, how. countries are organized and how citizens typically behave. Um, And that's, you could argue, partly that's political, partly it's because of the organization of of healthcare and also the organization of uh, law enforcement. And it's partly just the the national character, the way people behave. So look at how, for example, in Germany, people were very reassured by the rules-based approach uh, that Angela Merkel put forward. And she's been Pretty universally applauded for setting out very clearly. Here is the scientific evidence, which drives us to impose these rules for the good of the people, and therefore people should obey them. And then people largely did. There was uh, there's been you know pretty good uh, um, compliance with the rules and acceptance of them. Um, Whereas in Sweden, the government didn't impose very many rules. They instead simply issued advice and then 90% of the public simply took the advice as a rule. For example, not going to um, second homes uh, where hospital facilities might not be so good. In Belgium, where I live, um, the police have had to enforce the rules rather a lot. And there's been a fair degree of non-compliance, which has led to people being fined. So although people... Largely accepted the rules set by the government. Uh, the degree of self-discipline and and automatic compliance was was somewhat less than um, in either Sweden or Germany. And I'm I'm just going anecdotally. I have not seen academic studies of this, but I think these are these are interesting points that the, the, how the societies what people expect from their government. Um, and I think this also takes us into the question of the role of the state because. Um, What's different about uh, the U.S. and the U.K. is that both of these countries have had over the past 30 years a strong pushing back of the state and quite a strong ideological movement, particularly on the centre right, but also, uh, frankly, from the Labour Party in the U.K. and and also from the Democrats in the U.S. towards the idea that private sector activity uh, is often better and citizen led things are often better and philanthropy is often better than state intervention. Um, and so there's less essential state um, facilities and resources. I mean, for example, the NHS is much less well resourced than the healthcare systems in France or Germany or Belgium or Sweden. Um, and that's now a huge problem because the NHS simply can't treat very many people in hospital in comparison with the other countries whereas in the US of course is a completely different system with a private healthcare system um so, the, the, the differences in the role of the state, both in healthcare and also um, social safety nets, social security, is very stru- strikingly contrasted by this crisis. And that will lead to political debates over the decades to come as people ask themselves, for example, in the United States, should we have universal state provided healthcare like they have in Canada? You'll see debates um, in other countries about. Um, is our healthcare care provision um, adequate the way it is? Should we have a lot more common EU um, emergency response uh, capabilities, for example? Um, but also questions about civil liberties, because in some countries it's gone quite well. In others, um, it could go wrong in, in future. And, and in some countries, there's, of course, been a power grab by the ruling party, notably um, in Hungary. So uh, definitely this will have quite major repercussions, which are not necessarily to do with National culture, but they're also about political choices.
0: Uh, Peter, do you agree? Uh, Heather was was pointing a few things, but I think she said at the beginning that it was mostly uh, a cultural factors what was defining the the, the the types of lockdowns rather than the, the the specific political party in power in each country. Do you do you want to react to that?
3: Yes, thank you. I think Heather Heather and Ben are right. Ben has pointed out that you know choices will emerge later on. Uh, the more this crisis becomes manageable, the more the choice question comes up, and shall we have a little bit more or less uh, restriction in society? And uh, the real political conflict domestically is coming. Is coming when uh, when we're you know in the opening up phase. Uh, but I think the the point that Heather made that you know choices in the past have a major influence on how the crisis unfolds, and particularly she stressed the. Uh, you know, the the prominence of neoliberalism uh, that we've seen since the 1980s, especially in Anglo-Saxon countries and how that has, you know, uh, curtailed now healthcare uh, responses in in the US and in the UK. And the second thing that that plays in here is um, general respect towards authority, the inclination of people to uh, trust messages coming uh, from the government and to abide by uh, rules that that are or, or uh, guidelines that the government issues. And the third factor that plays a role is the c- capacity of governments to impose authoritarian uh, restrictions. So these three Choices in the past, uh, the product of decades of of political conflict, they very much affect how this crisis is is unfolding. And you have, you always have exceptions to the rule. Take Greece, for example. You know, this is a culture uh, where uh, authorities are seen with a lot of scepticism due to you know, decades of of uh, corruption, uh, and yet the response to the crisis has been very effective to date. Um, uh, restricting uh, rules have been have been imposed strictly, but there's been a lot of following of uh, uh, how the government has uh, laid out its its policy. So, it's not a, a determinant factor. But I think, and again, I agree with Heather that it's early days and that we need uh, a lot more time to study how this crisis eventually unfolds and and how and where uh, casualties uh, arise. But I think eventually these three factors that, we, uh, that I just mentioned will have a major impact, the, the degree of neoliberalism since the 1980s, curtailing health care, uh, general uh, attitude towards authority and, and rule-following behavior in countries, and capacity of the state to enforce um, uh, social distancing rules.
0: Uh, Let's move on now. And I want to ask you about uh, populism and coronavirus, because before we enter into this crisis, we saw uh, over the last years how populist parties were were, uh, so much having success pretty much all around Europe. And I'm wondering whether this crisis is an opportunity for them or rather this crisis is showing their weaknesses in their uh, in their uh, proposals in their way of, of doing things. So, what is your Ben? I'd like you to start. What 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 is your take on this? Yeah, again, of course, this is a
2: dynamic aspect, uh, and I think if you look at the start of the crisis, then I think a lot of populist parties were really struggling to position themselves because it was hard to 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 uh, oppose uh, any government response, and it also felt disloyal. Um, although some of them tried in a way to to, to do so and it, it, it most of the time if you look at, at opinion polls know that that didn't work for them very well um, and uh, they, they went down um, in their support while the government uh, uh, gained. So in that sense um, uh, it, it's a difficult time for populist parties. But there's another of course important distinction here to be made between populist parties in opposition and populist parties in, in, in government. Um, so, so, so here, of course, you see now the typical example is, is Hungary. Heather can say much more about that than, than I, but, but that it has jumped on the moment to uh, to move forward in in its power grab and in cutting down uh, the, the opposition and, and, and civil liberties in, in, in the Hungarian society. It's interesting also to compare it with, with Poland, where it looks now, as, as I understand it, that the presidential elections of Sunday will not proceed. Uh, even if the government decides it to do so, Um, so that's a different situation. Uh, But I think we really also have to take into account that also for opposition parties, uh, populist parties in opposition, the the opportunities to um, mobilise on this will increase as we go along. Because for nobody, I think, uh, can say that this has been a success. It has been a crisis, there have been many people dead, um, and it's easy to argue, of course, that, um, uh, yeah, this is inexcusable and that we somehow, uh, with the power, with the ability of insight, we could have done better than we've done. So um, in that sense, um, things are moving and I would expect uh, many opposition parties and populist parties to um, turn against the government response again um, as uh, the lockdown uh, reduces.
1: I would even take what uh, what Ben has said a stage further. I think populists, they definitely lose in the short term from a crisis and they gain in the long term. They lose in the short term because what people look for um, when a crisis hits them and there's lots of uncertainty and a lot of fear, they want a reassuring, safe pair of hands that shows them a way out, takes charge and tells them what to do. However, as uh, they get fed up with being in a crisis situation, and in this case, confined to their homes and unable to resume their normal activities, and um, many of them losing income, uh, losing their businesses, and so on, they will get more and more resentful of those uh, initially reassuring, um, taking charge kinds of measures. Um, and the populace will be waiting there on the margins to jump in and seize the opportunity. That is what populists do. Um, they are incredibly skilled politicians, sometimes the most skilled in a political environment, um, to find, to seize on aspects of the public mood uh, and to blame, to point the finger of blame at the establishment and say, you see, they could have done it better, you see, that's not what we need, you see, they failed. Um, and although they may not be offering, alternative to what the government has done. They nevertheless um, channel the oppression um, and fear and resentment about the situation um, into support for themselves. And they're then able to ride the recovery wave and all of the aftermath and the problems that will come in the aftermath of this initial crisis phase um, for a very long time. I mean, look at Matteo Salvini in Italy, for example, who has managed to um, take his party, La Lega, a regional autonomy party into a national party with a huge following, and he's still using many arguments and a lot of political energy from resentment of the way Italy was treated uh, by the rest of the EU in the after the 2008 crisis, during the Euro crisis, and he will do the same again. He will do this also um, with the the way that um, the EU has responded to Italy's problems during the Corona crisis. No question about it. He will use that. We also I I think that Ben's point also about populists in opposition and populists in government is a key one. Salvini will benefit from the fact that he didn't have to take charge and impose unpopular measures or measures that will become unpopular. Um, He was very lucky. He was forced out of power just before this crisis happened. And so he'll ride the wave coming back, whereas populists in power. In um, Hungary and Poland, have had a completely different response, where they've used it as an opportunity for a power grab and to pass legislation um, that essentially bypasses democratic controls.
0: So, Peter, uh, opportunities for populists are more in the long run, as as Heather is uh, is suggesting. Yeah, I,
2: I'm I'm going to be very short. I simply agree with Ben and Heather. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but let's just turn it around. I mean, I was actually amazed how the counter government handled this so far, uh, and I think one of the motivations indeed for Italy to relatively move quickly now into releasing its lockdown is indeed to 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 take the wind out of uh, Salvini's sails. Um, and I'm not sure that the credit will disappear completely there. Uh, I think also uh, what has been remarkable throughout. I mean, you can say well, people are fickle and people are impatient, and they want will want to move out, and of course there will be a of the elected that will be like that. But it's also been impressive, I think, how disciplined and responsible many people have responded to the crisis. So I, I agree that Italy is a key case and, and a very a case in the balance. Uh, but I'm, I, 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 I'm not just as, as pessimistic as I hear we rather being. And one contrast case is the, I think the UK is very interesting here. I think uh, you can say that in a way the Conservatives have handled this initially rather in a populist way, and I'm not sure whether that will not have a boomerang effect. It's unlikely to benefit, well, the, the Euro skeptic populists that, that the UK has seen in the, in, in the last years. Um, and, but it may well return uh, more established voices back to power. Or am I too optimistic here, guys?
1: I think that this is an unprecedented crisis yeah, that could change true, political true. dynamics as well, which is really interesting. So, I mean, populists always play the role of being on the fringes of politics, ready to leap in um, when there's an opportunity, and um, they rarely take responsibility for responding in a whole-of-government way to anything. Um, and that's 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 why uh, they they you know that's the role that they play in democratic systems. Um, but what I think is really key is what are the structural changes that this crisis brings to politics? Does it bring parties closer together or further away? Does it start new debates? And I think it does start new debates. It starts debates about a new kind of social contract, about what citizens expect from the state, what they want from the state. I think people will will, um, treasure healthcare services and whether they're well-run or badly run, much, much more. There'll be much more attention to that in the future. But I also hope that, There might be new social contracts coming also because, of course, we've still got climate change coming. We've still got demographic challenges, which this crisis has shown up to because it's so much affected the elderly. And so whether parties can start to build platforms around systemic changes that are needed to cope with ageing populations and with climate coming out of this crisis, that could give them a new lease on life.
3: If I might add, I think... I mean, the easiest populist line is that restrictions on, on lockdown haven't been removed early and fast enough, right? We move into crisis, we move into lockdown, and then the question is when and how to to ease up, you know, the, the exit strategy, as it's called. And uh, the easiest argument is, of course, that the government didn't ease up soon enough, which you would not have a counterfactual to address if the government did it right, because then... Uh, the casualties would be fairly low and it would be uh, easy to say, well, you know, given low casualties government waited far too long with easing uh, up society again and um, a lot of economic damage could have been uh, alleviated. You see here's the state again trying to impose its rules on us. And if only we would hand back power to the people, we would, you know, do the sensible thing and have our economy going, but uh, the establishment is, is keeping us uh, from our destiny. That's the easiest argument. Well, will that play? Really depends on whether there'll be a second wave. Now, if government eases up society too quickly and uh, there might be this second wave and, and, and that might be even more devastating than the first, uh, that would, you know, heart uh, harm populist arguments in this sense uh, if it's not there then i think the populist argument is very easy to make along these uh, lines i just sketched
0: one of the battles that we saw in, in europe uh, before the coronavirus was about rule of law and and one of the cases where this was more concerning was in hungary and we've seen what uh victor orban has been doing with this crisis he's probably taking advantage of the crisis to to get even more more extra powers and how do you see this rule of law battle after coronavirus? In other words, is the, do you see the commission and other actors in Brussels with more reasons to get to be worried and, and with more resources to tell Hungary to to behave and, and to respect more the rule of law? Or rather, this is going to reinforce uh, Viktor Orbán's regime in Hungary?
1: Well, this crisis has caused a massive power grab Uh, in Hungary, with the government um, under the Fidesz ruling party, uh, which has a majority in the parliament in any case, uh, passing emergency legislation without any kind of sunset clause and uh, without the checks and balances that you normally see in a democracy. Um, And it's true that most European countries have passed one way or another, some form of emergency powers, governments, executive governments have taken on emergency powers, which is normal in a crisis, but they usually have bounds on them. And often those are imposed by constitutions, um, things like sunset clauses and, and so on. Plus their parliaments are usually still working and their parliaments usually, um, contain a functioning opposition. And those, those conditions are not in place in Hungary. So all of the problems of previous years with rule of law in Hungary are now compounded by, uh, what's happened now. The problem is that the EU does not have instruments or Enough political will um, in the other member states to respond to this. They haven't responded for 10 years because this started in 2010 when Fidesz came into power again. Um, And this crisis has removed one of the most precious political resources at EU level, which is political attention. Um, Leaders are too busy dealing with the crisis and their own problems at home. Um, And they're always reluctant to criticize another government for what it has done. There's a sort of gentleman's club aspect to the European Union. So it means that. Um, the uh, new mechanisms that the commission is introducing, particularly this uh, peer review mechanism for rule of law, where the commission will come out with a report on um, rule of law across the member states, that still goes ahead. There is still a lot of attention to rule of law um, in the European Parliament as well. But the member states are all over the place. It's very hard to get other prime ministers to speak out, Uh, I think governments, they're just very unwilling to criticize uh, one of their peers. Um, And this causes a problem because just this week, Uh, Viktor Orbán's claims that EU law should not have primacy and that um, his Fidesz-dominated parliament should be able to override it have just been confirmed by the German constitutional court in Karlsruhe on a completely different issue, which was about the quantitative easing um, uh, and the role of the European Central Bank versus the Bundesbank. And so you've got a very strong unlikely and unexpected alliance between uh, the German constitutional judges and the ruling party in Hungary, uh, contesting the EU's legal order. And that will have enormous consequences for the EU's rule of law, its whole community of law in the longer term. Um, And it's essentially, uh, this is not something that anybody could have predicted uh, coming at this point but it comes at just at the moment when leaders are least willing to to speak out and say how important rule of law is. Yes.
2: No, I, I think the point of attention is really key I mean at this point you really see that they, they, they well they didn't address it so far or they did not address it sufficiently so far um, and certainly at this point they won't address uh, and, speak, and talk stand up to Hungary um, but at the same time I think that there are two leads that are still interesting to watch one is I think that that Hungary may actually have gone too far. I mean, it's striking also now how they fall out of the, the Freedom House ratings. Um, and there will be a lot of pressure, of course, for Orbán uh, to, to to step back on, uh, and not to extend his uh, state of emergency indefinitely. Um, so I think that's, that there is something he may have crossed the line. The other thing is, of course, that there's still the financial uh, negotiations uh, by the end of the year the European Union is supposed to have a new multi-annual financial framework. And a lot of this hinges on money, both in a positive and in a negative sense, in terms of sanctioning and incentives. Um, and it will be very hard to ignore this. And I think um, while important people have been excusing Orbán for far too long, uh, the pressure will be increasing to uh, to do something about the financial aspect and to at least use that line uh, to exert pressure and to bring Hungary in line. although. Um, that 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 it's hard to see how that can happen with Orban still in power.
0: So, sorry, a, a little follow up on that. You're saying that because uh, it's so crucial to approve the seven-year budget. Uh, maybe uh, the criticisms against Orban are gonna be for a while uh, somehow silenced or uh, uh, reduced because Orban, as any other member, uh, as any other leader. In the EU 27 is is so needed to get these. No, no, no,
2: no. I don't. I mean, I, I actually think it, that it will be very hard to look away from this issue in negotiating the the annual financial framework. It it will be there at the middle of the table, and Orbán by his own doing, I think, has only uh, uh, reinforced the spotlights on this issue. Um, and the Commission, of course, has tabled a proposal to. Um, uh, to, to to make it possible to cut funding um for lack of rule of law compliance um so I, uh, I i actually think that this issue is going to be on the table um and there may be if indeed we can retreat a bit from the from the from the corona crisis and 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 spend attention and serious negotiations on the multiannual financial framework then I think there's an option that that, that lever, will uh, actually be, be exercised and used to try to put some pressure on Hungary. i
3: i disagree uh, here with you ben um although i love your posit- positive positive uh, uh, outlook but um but i fear that uh, the logic of the way these these uh, multi-annual frameworks are negotiated push uh, inherently towards the status quo and that lack of attention as as heather and you already pointed out uh, will will not push this uh, rule of law issue because they, they, you know the deal with the multi-annual uh, financial framework is that if you d- if they don't agree on a new and then when I say they I mean uh, the European Council the uh, the heads of state and the prime ministers of the member states if they don't agree then the previous budget will continue and that's such a strong impetus for status quo that anybody can simply say well if as long as i prefer the previous budget over whatever, whatever's on the table, I'll veto it, and uh, and 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 Orban can do that, and he will. And then the guy, the other government leaders will say, "Well, okay, we have more pressing issues. Let's not draw too much attention to this uh, uh, squabble over the budget, and uh, and move on, and basically tinker in the margins, and otherwise adapt or adopt more or less the same budget as we had before." That's what I think will happen
2: you're obviously more skeptical than I am uh, if they don't act this on this then indeed I think this is the best and, the, and maybe the last opportunity they have to do something about it and I'm, I actually think that some governments are well aware of that
0: So moving on, let's address a final question. We are seeing the uh, slow reopening of the economic and social life in the EU. But of course, we're seeing that happening at different levels and rhythms. So I'd like to ask you, to what extent is there a trade-off between health and precaution on the one hand and the need for an economic restart on the other? In other words, how does it map? On established ideological divides like left-right, conservative, progressive, pro-European nationalism, or establishment versus populist. Uh, ben, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm not
2: sure whether we can really map it on divides, but I think the the so we obviously I think are going to see differences in speed and in the in, in the willingness to open up quickly or indeed to be more cautious in the approach. And a lot of that I think depends on the internal political dynamics. so where the the pressure of the opposition and maybe also of business but particularly also of, of opposition of, of competing political voices is strong, governments will be under a lot of pressure uh, to release the valve and to, to to bring life into society again while where governments have enjoyed quite a, a broad a strong sense of authority, uh, they can probably take a more cautious approach. So in that sense, um, the divide need not necessarily map uh, around existing uh, lines, but but are more telling about the internal domestic politics. I think another aspect here is very much indeed whether the sentiment that hadn't mentioned already, that, that there is a moment for re-evaluating uh, the public sector, uh, the health sector in particular, um, uh, our ability to, to, to deal with public health issues. Um, I think there is a question which kind of political entrepreneurs will pick up that agenda? Um, and 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 so far, in most political systems, I don't see them really. We still see that, of course, the social democrats in many countries are really in the defensive. Um, so so that will be another factor. Whether indeed uh, uh, the political dynamics in different countries will be such that uh, a, a restart of, uh, of of the public sector can be taken or whether indeed we hope to return to um, uh, business as usual um, and the rather uh, neoliberal uh, consensus that has prevailed over the last decade uh, once the crisis is over.
1: I think it's much more profound in terms of its impact on politics over the longer run because this crisis has uh, brought to the fore issues that had been kind of um, just in the background of politics. So climate in particular, we saw last year in the European Parliament elections, how um, many parties decided to green themselves, go a little bit more green, including the centre right. And that's why Ursula von der Leyen, for example, then had to make her uh, commission have climate as one of its key priorities. But this crisis has changed views on climate in ways that might actually speed up um, the climate transformation, although it's, it's going to absorb a huge amount of political attention and money to come out of the crisis. Nevertheless, it, it has w- awakened people's um, awareness of systemic risk, including the private sector's awareness of systemic risk to a much greater extent. And there will be political entrepreneurs, as Ben was saying, who will pick that up um who will be pointing out not just the green parties but also those on the center left saying hey look we need social resilience um if if climate brings more crises of this kind our our, our public sector our healthcare workers are um, our social resilience in general, our social safety nets need to be ready for that. We need to build a new kind of um, of state resilience. And on the centre right, um, there will be plenty of people, <clears throat> even the neoliberals, saying, "Oh my goodness, our economies cannot withstand a series of shocks like this. If climate brings more shocks, more more epidemics, but also uh, natural disasters, uh, you know, extreme weather events, and of course the global warming, rising sea levels, etc., um, that's going to destroy our economies." It's going to destroy companies. Uh, There are people already saying, mainstream economists are saying every single major emitter is going to go bust. And that these public sector, these public bailouts with taxpayers' money that are happening right now during the corona crisis should come with um, requirements that companies come up with zero carbon transition plans to show how they're going to face the future. These are fundamental systemic changes. And now that um, citizens um, everywhere in Europe have experienced a, a massive change to their lifestyle. Their lifestyles, now admittedly temporary, the the idea of a, just a return to normal, a return to the same old economy as before. There's a real opportunity here for a major change and for politicians to present a different view of the future.
0: Peter, did you see a, a green agenda gaining momentum? I think Heather said it right. I mean, before the European elections, even. Uh, center-right parties turning so green. So, do you see that political landscape's turning even more green uh, after after this crisis?
3: Well, I I don't think that's that's where the uh, the main thrust is. I mean, first I'd like to say that what well, you know in the in the political science academic literature we refer to as political cleavages, so major conflicts in society, long-term conflicts that have been generated over the course of decades and that structure political conflict for, for decades to come, they, they change all the time a little bit, but very slowly. So the extent to which the crisis affects this depends on the intensity of the crisis. Is the Corona crisis going to be a societal revolution on a par with, let's say industrialization was in the, 19, in the um, uh, 20th, 19th century, creating a new conflict, like the class conflict, liberals against socialists. Well, not yet, but um, that really depends on how long this is going uh, on and how quasi-permanent these social distancing rules are um for now i think it will be folded into existing uh, conflict lines to existing political cleavages rather than generate an entirely new one you know we won't end up with an anti and a pro coronavirus or lockdown party at the end um, that that that's not the case it's very unlikely but uh, but what we do see is be just before and, and and climate as heather argued is, is you know part of this conflict we could see three major ideologies shaping European politics. There was the dominant liberal or neoliberal strand very much focused on individual liberties, free trade, um, downscaling of, of uh, the state, and uh, to some extent, opening up international exchanges, but without too much transfer of authority to supranational levels like the EU. And then we had communitarian reaction. So focus on um, often the nation as as uh, the community in question, but articulating and you know, we need to uh, keep our, our national identity or our group identity and we need to maintain sovereignty there and we need to protect our borders, both from immigrants and from foreigners telling us what to do and, um, well, basically anything. And thirdly, we had a group which which you know often are called cosmopolitans and they are they would argue against both these groups to say you know we need collective action at the global or at least the european level to address common problems including climate change but also migration um, and wealth issues are increasingly you know internationally uh, interdependent and i think the the key group of these three that has a problem are the liberals because the entire idea of individual self-deployment and and self-fulfillment and and uh, freedom is is much more difficult to argue because because of the inherent risks you bring to others uh, basic health Uh, but what happens to these other two groups that's yet to be seen and uh, i think to some extent communitarians at the national level have uh, an easy argument to make, you see we need to close the borders, foreigners bring uh, viruses and uh, uh, we need to protect our, our national health. But the Cosmopolitans can make a similar argument and say, you know, the, our, our systems are so interwoven that um, in order to tackle these kinds of pandemics, we need to empower the WHO and we need to um, settle up uh, the EU and other uh, supranational institutions with with uh, the actual authority to to address this, so that that's I think they have a harder case to make than than communitarians uh, at the national level. But I think what we'll see is a, fil- a a folding of this issue into a kind of global or European communitarianism versus a national uh, communitarianism, uh, and that that'll be very interesting to see. But but. The core, to me, of what this crisis does to politics is, is uh, install a value change that really redirects from a focus on human individualism uh, towards collectivism and and uh, uh, group orientation and uh, responsibilities for uh, you know other people's health, uh, not only one's own. And and I think that's you know that's going to be interesting to see how how these different parties in these different uh, groups that we had before are able to to adapt their uh, their arguments their rhetoric their programs to uh, to bring this in but it's it's a foldable uh, issue that that many different political parties with very different agendas both pro and anti uh, climate change uh, groups can use and and we've yet to see how um, how successful they'll be at it
0: we're coming to an end, but maybe Ben and Heather, would you like to react with, about to, to what Peter is saying about this collectivism moment and how all the parties will need to adapt to this this, this change in mindset? Well,
2: my my sense is very much that that if we talk about collectivism, then um, then it will be mostly national. I think what what we also see is that 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 this crisis has been mostly addressed at national level. Uh, that Europe has taken a back seat for a long time, that some of the divides that were already there in Europe were reinforced by this process. So when you talk about collectivism, I think it may reinforce senses of of national solidarity. I'm not sure it will contribute to uh, to new forms of transnational uh, or European or indeed cosmopolitan solidarity. And in that sense, I think that of the two two groups that, that, that... Peter describes between communitarians and cosmopolitans, I think the communitarians do have an easier story to tell about this um, than than, than the cosmopolitans. Heather?
1: The tricky question is how the different political actors will take up these opportunities. Uh, Because the ones who have always been in favor of communitarianism will focus on state-level responses and building up state capacities. and But what's interesting is it's possible that the more neoliberal political movements in Europe will look at the community somewhat differently. So I think a very interesting question is where the levels of politics may uh, shift a bit in people's minds and they're thinking about politics. For example, city level could become a lot more important, um, both because um cities are experiencing lockdown in different ways from rural areas, but also because cities will get specific money for climate change. A lot of the climate adaptation will need to happen at city levels with electric buses and waste collection and so on. And so in addition to the question of how party politics might be restructured uh, by new issues coming in um, and and as parties react to the, the issues of Climate, social contract, um, uh, population aging, and so on. There's also the question of the restructuring of government. And uh, Peter was raising the very interesting prospect of European communitarianism, and I think that there will ha- there will be some of that coming out because. Um, the inefficiencies that were revealed by the initial crisis response in in terms of um, you know countries competing with each other to get enough uh, protective equipment and ventilators and so on that was very unseemly and and uh, showed that much more could be done to um, coordinate at, at eu level and and provide common crisis response capabilities. so that that could come out in a very practical way. but I think he's right to point to the fact that communitarianism tends to happen a lot more within national cultures because people have a sense to help other people like them and the the whole question of in groups and out groups becomes much more sharp it, it becomes uh, people are are much more aware of the boundaries of solidarity whom they're willing to make sacrifices for and whom not people do feel they they've all made sacrifices and that sacrifices have been a good thing during this crisis so solidarity at community level has grown but will that solidarity also stretch across national boundaries, national borders. Um, that's still tricky. And who would promote that as well? When we know the EU level is very poor at communication and promoting um, these this kind of, of thing, um, will there be politicians who see an advantage in doing that? Seems kind of unlikely. Um, but I, that's actually what, very much what's needed, um, given that this crisis in, in practice doesn't respect national borders um, in terms of the contagion effect. And of course, we have forthcoming crises, particularly climate, that definitely affect the whole of humanity. So, can the change of mindset that started with COVID go much broader and take people into a sense of solidarity, not only with all Europeans, but the whole of humanity? That's a big step. That's a very big step. And yet, there are there are signals of it happening. Look at how online solidarity has grown. Look at how um, people have become very interested in, in things like mindfulness. Maybe there is a societal change and cultural change that in the end will drive political change.
0: Thank you, Heather. Uh, so many political dimensions being affected by this crisis. And I started by asking you whether this was simply a technical matter. I think I think you proved that there are so many, so many elements uh, that are going to affect our political systems in the next months and the next years, probably, that we better keep this conversation open and we're going to watch all these developments. I want to thank all three of you. I think this was a a great uh, conversation and uh, we're coming to an end. And uh, thank you for your contribution. Please stay safe and healthy. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Very nicely done.
0: Europe After Corona is a series of podcasts promoted by Open EU Debate and produced by Agenda Publica. We will continue this conversation very soon, going a bit deeper into the East West differences in the EU dealing with the coronavirus. Because, yes, these lockdown days are slowly coming to an end, and we need to be ready with answers on the post corona world that is emerging. Stay tuned.